across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> good afternoon and welcome to Flavour and our first broadcast of 2022. And it is good to be back in the studio after such a long break. Today we have a look back at some of the stories we covered in 2021. So here's Alan Alder and Sue Bailey with some of the details. Yeah, it was uh, another extraordinary year with food businesses coping with both COVID and Brexit. Yet many new businesses managed to open and we'll be covering some of those. We heard some interesting pieces of food history too, including the story of Indian restaurants in Cambridge. We'll hear about some of the ideas for cooking that some of our contributors came up with as well. And it was also the year that one of Cambridge's most gifted food people died, so we'll be remembering Stella Pereira. You'd think that with all the uncertainties of 2021, there'd be a few businesses willing to take the risk of opening up, at least until things became more stable. But no, the spirit of the independents was as strong as ever. One of the new independents was Finboys and their fish butchery in Mill Road. His co-owner, Richard Stokes... Well, we've got all the framework in for the shop now and we're just busy getting the tiles all done for the kitchen. Those, those tiles are amazing. They look like fish scales. Yeah, fish <laughs> scale tiles, yeah. Especially uh, chosen. Yes, yeah, very lucky to find those. Also, the shelving here. What is shelving? We're going to have a fish counter here along this wall. Up to the window. Up to the window, yeah, yeah. with a fish fridge. So where we're going to have all the raw fish will be prepared and wrapped. Our dried fridges will be here, and then deli section as well. So, so that's further away into yep, the, into the, the shop, restaurant. And yeah. we're going to have a grab-and-go fridge in this other large recess here. And then this side is where the bar's going to be brought in, hopefully next week, and that'll be all fitted. Yeah. Enough space for, say, 18 chairs along here. So a large oak top is coming in, about three pieces, because it's a massive piece of wood. So a bit like Barafina then, uh, eating at the bar? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the flooring's going in as well? Yeah. The whole place looks bigger. It's a big space. I think it's probably the biggest shop on, on Mill Road, I would have thought. Further up Mill Road, Fancits opened, run by Dan Fancit and Holly Minns. We're going to use British produce. I know lots of people do, but it's French technique. So and then the both of us lived out there for a year when we first got together so lots of his training has been in France he right. loves France we both love France well that was always a dream of mine to work in France and I, I worked at a couple of Michelin star restaurants out there mostly at a, a restaurant called Liotroche which was was on the Loire River it's a Relais Chateau hotel wonderful experience so you can expect duck liver parfait and artichoke on croutes a really lovely one and that's Loads what Dan's preparing dishes. now isn't that's it? exactly yeah that's yeah. what he's now doing in the kitchen um, that's a labour of love but it will be lovely, but it will be so four starters, four mains, four desserts on the menu. But yeah, very, very French in its influences. Thin boys and fancits boosting Mill Road's gastronomic profile still further. Meanwhile, in Fendrayton, Mark Poynton reopened MJP at The Shepherds. So 
Salomon from three, three and a bit years ago did some pop-ups while trying to score MJP restaurants, which obviously was a bit of a struggle at the time. Then took up a residency at Cambridge Cookery School. COVID hit everybody and obviously we all got closed down. So we started doing MJP at home, which was sort of a gourmet heat at home food, sort of microwave meals and stuff. And I think we were a bit ahead of the curve with that. We did that before lockdown hit, to be honest. That, so that went really well. But during lockdown, while doing at home, managed to secure the lease on what was the ancient Shepherd Ditton as my permanent site. Signed the lease on the June, flipped it round, redecorated it and opened MJP at the Shepherd in 2020, signed the, signed the lease and opened it on August the 14th. 2020. Managed to open for 11 weeks before being shut down again as well. Yeah, thank you Boris for that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, managed to open for 11 weeks. Got reviewed by Michelin. Managed to receive a Michelin plate, which is outstanding food in the category. Obviously no stars or anything like that. Reviewed by the Sunday Times as one of the best places to stay in the UK as well. Quite a good start to life before we got shut down again. But again, it sort of gave you a bit of a feel of how things were going and any sort of little glitches that of course then you had shut down time to sort out. Exactly, and and the beauty of signing a lease in the first lockdown was that I managed to change a total different style of direction from what was a pub to a destination restaurant with a bar and rooms. And then obviously, yeah, second lockdown, I managed to do some more restoration of the place. I built a vegetable garden out the back, which has helped us through this summer period as well. So, yeah, it's been good. So you can literally do fresh to the plate from the back garden? Yeah, exactly, as much as possible. And on the roof as well. Uh, we've got peas and, well, had peas and strawberries on the roof. Got some tomatoes left. Uh, tomatoes in the garden, strawberries in the garden, all different sorts of flowers, beans, broad beans, beetroots, radishes, turnips, raspberries. It's, it's been quite quite good. Not totally self-sustainable, because I don't think we ever can be, but it's certainly, certainly been helpful. In Hills Road, next to the Botanic Garden, a new cafe-stroke restaurant opened. It's called Low Carbo. Run by mechanical engineer Colin Lacey, this is his first food business. Our core concept is low carb and no sugar. One of the challenges you face with low carb food is that uh, you lose some of the taste and the sweetness because you're not adding sugar and flour and refined carbs to it. But what we try to do is balance that. We use almond flour, for example, the almond bread has uh, proven to be very popular. So this almond bread, Colin calls it his revolution bread. Yeah, that was my stepson's words for it. But it is interesting because we cook it freshly on site here, but we, we also toast it and then offer it with various uh, kind of a spicy butter or with the uh, fruit compote. But we've had people come and say, well, can we buy a loaf? You know, and the same with cakes, actually. We've had, we've had people come from London and buy our blueberry bunt cakes whole. It's just funny how things evolve We're a small family-run business. In everything that we've done, we've tried to be natural. And we wanted to support local businesses. I don't live too far from Hot Numbers in Melbourne. They have a lovely roastery. Yeah, they gave us some free samples to try out. They were so supportive. They came and they've trained the people. We get our tea from them as well. Yeah, it's the same with some of the other suppliers we have, you know, with Cambridge Quality Meats, based on the corner of Arbury and Milton Road. Great meat, great quality. You don't want food that's travelling thousands of miles to kind of get you in the end. That kind of defeats the purpose. And then we wanted to have some other offers that were low-carb, but also covered more of the what I would call the day parts. So, for example, we've steak, salmon fillet, pulled pork. We literally roasted overnight for eight hours, which is a slow cook, so the meat almost disintegrates. Our pulled pork is quite amazing, I have to say. It's the most popular one, and that's the one uh, 
we sell the most, like pulled pork, everything homemade. With a pit bean, it's wonderful. And the nice touch with our omelette, the slow and low, is the Alabama sauce and the spiced cheese on top. It's just a cherry on top of the cake. <laughs> The renovation of the Union Society building off Bridge Street has resulted in the opening there of Oracle. Sue spoke with Bursa, Steve Bax. As we know, the Cambridge Union, but what an amazing location for a new venture. Yes, absolutely. I think it's, it's been over 10 years in the making, so it's been quite a slow project to, to get off the ground, both from a point of view of, of what we wanted to do here, but as well as raising the funds necessary to be able to do it. And it's kind of crucial in, in the history of Cambridge Union Society in, in what we want to do for the future. The Orator Bar and Brasseries is, is the kind of commercial arm of the Cambridge Union Society, and, and all of the revenues that, that will be raised through the Bar and Brasserie will be put back into the charity of the Union Society and will enable us to further develop it for the students of the future. We're in a beautiful Gothic building that requires a lot of maintenance and a lot of upkeep and that's very expensive and there's still lots for us to do and so yes by by opening this we hope that you know the students love it it's still their union and this is still their bar but it also we can now open this up to the wider public and Cambridge audience and, and visitors for somewhere lovely and relaxing to come right in the centre of Cambridge beautiful outside space as well as indoor space so we're all very very proud it's a lovely day for us to have you here you know you're the first people to come in and and uh, witness what we've done you have also seen what it was like before so it's a massive change to to what was here previously yes so massive it was shall i say tired before yes in need of in a... need of some investment yes. and care and love and care you know yes. i think i think hopefully you know when people come and see what we've done here they can see the love care and attention that we've put into the building and the, and, and the environment to make it a really relaxing place to come if you want to come for breakfast and read the papers, have a coffee, if you want to come back and have a cocktail at lunchtime and then come for, come for some, some food in the evening. So it really is a, a place where you can come at any point during the day. More recently, Cotter Kitchen and Bar opened. Where is Cotter? Can you tell me? So Cotter is under the Hyatt Centric Hotel in Eddington. So Eddington is the new development just on the outskirts of Cambridge. For those Cambridgeites who don't know their Cambridge terribly well, what is the ideas behind how the food is planning out here? So you obviously get involved in breakfast and a brunch from sort of morning till night service, basically. It is, yes. It is seven days a week, 365 days a year, from 7am till 10pm. So we offer breakfast for the hotel guests and community and then roll into lunch and dinner. People working locally, mothers dropping or fathers dropping children off at school, they can just pop in for an early morning restorative coffee and so on. Definitely, yeah, we are very much concentrating on engaging the local community as well as the hotel. Can you give me a sort of flavour of some of the dishes that you've got? We offer a really nice char-grilled chicken with a potato terrine and a lovely kind of barbecue jus. We also have a pork chop 
which is a dish that we've just upgraded on the menu. We also have some steaks, do a cauliflower steak and some other vegetarian and vegan options as well. So we're describing the restaurant more as a kitchen and bar so that we're welcoming drinkers as well as just diners. And then we operate the coffee counter, which is located in the hotel reception. That's open from 7am till 6pm every day. We're describing our food style as wood-fired food. So we have a charcoal uh, Josper oven in the kitchen. So a lot of our food goes through the Josper to get that nice kind of wood-fired flavour and menu. Obviously, we are a, we're a new restaurant. Yeah, it's a very exciting time for us. Moving into spring and summer of next year, we've got an outdoor courtyard area and also a roof terrace. Seasonally, at the moment, we're not activating those spaces, but when we are able to, when the weather becomes warmer, then I think Cotter is going to become a very exciting larger place to come and a nice kind of retreat from the from the city centre. Following the long Covid break, My Persian Kitchen returned to the pop-up restaurant scene in September, courtesy of L Events, and they are a new hospitality business showcasing independent chefs in our area. Here are chefs Cyrus and Abigail talking about their produce and some of their dishes. The joy we get from actually growing our own fresh produce, mm-hmm. then putting it into the dishes, is absolutely amazing. We had the aubergine, we had the onions, we grew ourselves garlic, herbs, tomatoes. (laughs) It's difficult to remember everything that goes in because we try and preserve a lot of the vegetables as well because, of course, it's seasonal. Sorry, the torsi as well. Yeah, Yeah. torsi, yeah. Pickled vegetables, yeah. And you can't get as local as that. When people say (laughs) source locally, I mean, we want to go that one step further and actually kind of produce our own stuff, which goes into our dishes. Mm. And, yeah, I was quite happy with the kubi day, I mean... Lamb kubide kebabs. There are no Persian restaurants in Cambridge, and I was happy to find actually this one in a starter platter. It's normally a main dish for us, but you know, with the size that he actually put, it was quite nice. They describe it as succulent grilled lamb kebabs. Yeah. I've never had lamb that was that soft. Yeah. I'm actually more used to more grilled version of that. I mean, I think there was a new spice in it. I couldn't really put my hands on it or it was. Kind of feel like he westernized it somehow. <laughs> yeah. I get the impression that that's the sort of thing he wants to do, to put his own stamp on these recipes. Yeah. And, and I felt that's where it came through with, say, the feta pistachio and walnut whip. Yeah. It was so smooth, it was so creamy. It felt like it was something for the British palate, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely love that. I actually kind of feel, felt the same way that, you know, he wants to you combine the two worlds, really. Yeah. I think he's doing a good job. To me, tasted Persian, but it was also, like, new to me, so, yeah. <laughs> That's a funny one, because that one is Persian-inspired. The thing is, with lots of the Persian desserts, traditional desserts we've tried, they're often quite heavy. And as you've just found yourself, by the time you get to an end of a Persian meal, the last thing you want is a heavy pudding. <laughs> and so that one is one that is not a traditional Persian dish, but it is an but abs- a favourite. It is an absolute yes, favourite. Everyone loves it. Just tried the feta dip. Absolutely adores it. Always a success. Away from restaurants for a minute, lockdown and general concerns about eating in busy restaurants helped to stimulate home cooking. And those starting out in baking were very much helped by the launch of the Cambridge Baking Company. Here's founder Amelia Shaw. So we are starting on the 7th of September. Um, so we'll be open just before Valentine's Day um, and we're going to be selling baking kits that come in glass reusable bottles. So you'll get a one litre reusable glass milk bottle and that comes with 
is kind of all the ingredients to make things like cookies, brownies, that have things like flour, the cocoa powder, all of those things that people often buy and then have in their cupboards and then end up throwing away. Um, so you've got a kind of kit there. Um, all you have to do is add an egg, some butter, combine it all together and stick it in the oven. So each bottle will come with ingredients and also kind of instructions. And yeah, it's just a way to get people baking really and doing things in the lockdown and going forward um, and get people doing something. That sounds like a really good idea. So how, how, how did you think of it? So I'm a postgraduate student full-time, um, and my dad, bless him, he tries, um, and he tries to bake, he'll try to make things, but somehow it always just ends kind of in disaster. Um, so I thought with making these kits, then you kind of got the ingredients there, you can't go wrong, they're really, really foolproof, um, and you can bake something at home. Um, so I grew up kind of in the countryside up north, and my first job was on a milk ground, um, so the milk bottle idea came kind of from that. And I think there's a lot of people out there who sell amazing bakes and cookies and brownies that you can get delivered. Um, but these come with kind of the promise of that experience of making something and doing something with a family or doing something to pass the time. Um, and then at the end, you've got a really great smelling kitchen and also something really tasty to yeah, well, what a, what a great idea that is. Uh, and a worthy winner of the Be Social Best New Business Award. Our final two new businesses help to supply the home cook. The first also helps to bring about social cohesion in a new housing development. It's Trommington Meadows Market. A little bit of summer music in this beautiful weather. Só Hi, we're here today at the Trumpeton Meadows Sunday Market. Only our third time doing it, so we're very excited to have everybody join us for music, food, basically all sorts of things that you can buy from a, a local trader. That's Karen. The Trumpington Market was put together by herself and Gillian, two residents of the relatively new Trumpington Meadows community. This is hard when you first all move in, nobody knows anybody. So having open, friendly events like this is what it's all about, isn't it? Getting together and having a good time. And, and getting to know your neighbours and people in the community. I think it's a great way to meet people. So. And plenty of stallholders happy to be back in business and on a new market too. It's nice to be back. Lots of local businesses, stallholders. It's been lovely. I have ice and sugar everywhere. <laughs> I've started building brownie stacks now. It's gradually growing and I think it's being well supported. Would it be music or a bar? Food fans and music, so pop along. More importantly, lots of people are getting to know it now because when it first started, not everyone knew. The local community, which I believe there's over 1,200 people who live in Trumpington, are starting to be more aware of it. And 18 months of COVID rules meant that people were willing to celebrate even the smallest things. That's it. I mean, I had one guy, it was really sweet, he wanted to celebrate the fact that he could introduce two grandchildren into his bubble and he wanted chocolate cheesecake to celebrate. And I thought that was just so sweet. In Karen's words... This is a market for everybody. You know, we'd love people to come from Cambridge or Trumpington. At the moment, we just advertise in Trumpington Meadows because that's where we live. Entertainment and great treats and now alcohol, which is quite exciting. So that's a real push out the boat. But, you know, we've enjoyed it, haven't we? And I think it can happen again. 
Yeah, and the market has proven a great success, always drawing the crowds, no matter the weather. And they are planning on a Chinese New Year market celebration on the 6th of February, and perhaps other international festivals as the year goes on. Uh, and another great success is Cambridge Mushrooms. They're based in Coton. Here are Andrew and Michelle Duggan. So we have um, golden oysters, which are the, the bright yellow ones. They grow really nice sort of caps on the top of them. Then we have the tree oyster, which is um, a different type, and it's, it varies from blue, if it's quite cold, to sort of uh, paling out at like a silvery grey if it gets above 20 degrees. Uh, we have the shiitakes, which we grow on sustainably sourced oak wood as opposed to straw. You can grow them on straw, but in the wild they grow in oak, so we keep that. Inoki, uh, we have the king oysters, which, you know, the big ones, they're really favoured by chefs. Uh, we have the white oysters, which are similar to the grey oysters, but they're a variety from Florida, so they're uh, a mutated cousin of the silvery tree oysters and they grow pure white and they're they're really popular yeah so how long have you been doing it then um, nine nine months to a year i'd say we've been growing them actively selling them since okay. february yeah and they're all over the country now pretty much we dry them and our dried packets go out everywhere all the way up to scotland and down to devon and places gosh so there's a real yeah gap in the market yeah there's a real good market for it I, I think one of the problems is that everything else on the market tends to be from china and has a horrible production method to it as well as the you know vast carbon footprint and by keeping it local we can just just minimize all of that while keeping the quality up compared right. to what you buy on a wholesale market well, are there many local businesses using your mushrooms, Andy? Uh, yeah, just this week, actually, we've been picked up by King's College, Cambridge. Uh, we spoke to their head chef there. We gave him a sample of our mushrooms, the yellows, the goldens, the white ones, and he immediately came back to us asking to be their supplier. So that's been our most exciting development in the past week. Yeah. That is quite exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whilst new businesses were opening, some which COVID had been forced to be closed to the public were able to reopen, such as Calverley's Brewery in May. During lockdown, we realised it was going to be a bit of a brutal year. One of the opportunities just to help us get back on our feet was to open from Tuesdays onwards. So we've got uh, planning permission to now open five nights a week, mm -hmm. Tuesday to Saturday. Five nights a week. That is a big and important change for Calverley's Brewery. And it's not the only change. Over here, we've got our new Pride and Joy, our new micro canning line. We had been using someone external sending our beer off. The scale of our venue didn't allow us to be um, doing this on site. To be able to can as close to the brewery rather than use sort of external companies to pack the beer, yeah. it's just bringing quality control into the brewery. Mm. Whereas because of what the past year has thrown up, we're doing so much more packaged beer that it's legitimised us and the change of space to be able to do it all on site. Oh, he's about to switch it on. It had some sound effects I thought could have been quite useful. It's just like a nice... Uh, Something like that. Gas sound. Today we've just been canning an IPA. Zesty, West Coast. Easy drinking, but with full hop flavour. Yeah. We've got so many beers coming and loads of different artworks. And anyone who drinks in our tap bar knows that we're always changing, experimenting, tweaking. So then for us to split batches and do half cans, half 
growlers or half kegs and be able to offer like really, really rare beers with artworks that we've designed on, have lots of fun doing it, bring it all in-house. It's all just pushing it further towards the William Morris vision of craftsmen self-contained in the 21st century, but we're making a very small run product, which is really exciting, the fact that I'm doing a job where I can feel full pride and connection to all the processes. So that's Calverley's Brewery, 100% in-house microbrewery, with a new canning line, new opening days, new taproom. And it all kicks off on the 18th of May, close enough to taste. It feels like we've got a comfortable shoe that I'm just really looking forward to just wearing and wearing like, further. But even when places were up and running, the new COVID variant brought more difficulties and uncertainty, as Rosie Sykes explained in December. We, I had a very large event for 250 planned, uh, which was cancelled four hours, four days beforehand, which I felt at the time was very understandable because 250 in an enclosed space uh, still feels not quite right. But since then, I've had two smaller events cancel, and I gather from friends who have restaurants that they're getting a lot of cancellations for bigger bookings. This is the time of year when restaurants make, I would have thought, most of their money. And it the, is. The tips are probably more generous in the same year Alan. as well. And the, the booze bills are normally bigger. And, yeah, it is definitely a time to be making money. Right, so, so I think, how, how are people feeling? I think a bit squeezed, a bit squeezed, because everybody thought that we were in a safer place and that they could start to recoup and that's probably not necessarily the case. Yeah. And the problem is as well that the price of food has risen a lot, which, which is very hard to pass the cost on of because people still aren't really aware of the real cost of food. So people, it's, it's a great struggle at the moment if you own an um, establishment, as far as I can tell. And further uncertainties are caused by the difficulty in obtaining staff, as John, the manager of the wine rooms in Hills Road, explains. As a new place, has it been easy to recruit staff? In a word, no. Um, it's been very difficult. Um, like, I've, I've done this a few times, mainly in London, and um, I must say it's been unparalleled, really, to try and find staff at, at every level. Um, I think we've been quite lucky and we've got a, a great team, but it's been quite a challenge to find and secure. I'm free. I'm free. Well, let's have a break from our look back for a minute to find out what free food is available in and around Cambridge. And this information comes from the Olio app, which exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. Yeah, and a quick look at Olio tells us that Lou in Cherry Hinton is giving away three big chicken and mushroom Chinese steam buns. Anna on Fullbourne Road has a pack of cheese bites going spare. Liz out in Trumpington has spring onions, carrots, little gem lettuce. All good either for humans or rabbits and guinea pigs, she says, because they must be eaten <laughs> quickly. Uh, next up is Tracy. Tracy lives between Cherry Hinton and Teversham. She has some vegan lemon curd to give away. I've tried it and I'm not keen, she says, but perhaps it's more to your taste. She got it from Daily Bread, 
and Daily Bread are the Whole Food Co-op on King's Hedges, who we did a feature on almost six years ago now. And finally, Nikki in Arbury, she has parsnips, blueberries, potatoes, bananas, and a pack of very fancy chocolate crumble biscuits, all available for collection. And that is just a few things found in the Olio app today. And there's another free app, it's called Too Good To Go, and that has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, uh, ready for you to take home instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. On to some news now, beginning with the market. Emerald Foods will be closing for a holiday. The last day's trading before closure is Saturday, 22nd January, and the reopening will be on the 8th of February. Roberto of Roberto's Deli is opening a shop in St Neots. He'll be keeping the market stall here in Cambridge, though, and the new shop will be open sometime towards the middle of February. Finboys is now doing meal kits for two. Last week's was hake, gurnard and smoked haddock, dauphine potato pie with braised fennel and salsa. And the cost is a very reasonable £25. You order online by 3pm to collect the next day. There's Cambridge Chocolate Festival coming up from 11th to the 13th February, curated by Ria of Bumble and Oak. There will be a chocolate-themed cocktail menu on the Friday evening and the menu on Saturday and Sunday will include a chocolate breakfast dish. There'll be a chocolate tasting plate too and a demonstration of the process of chocolate making from bean to bar, as well as lots of other events. To book a table, go to Histon Smokehouse social media posts or website or you can phone them on Cambridge 491 174. You can get a free ticket for the events at info at bumbleandoak.com. Cotter is starting a bring-your-own wine night. That's on Wednesdays from 5pm. Looking ahead to February, Valentine's Night, there are two places whose bookings have opened already, Pudini of Willingham. They're having a 10-course Valentine's tasting menu and La Maison du Steak in Hills Road is taking bookings for seating for three sittings, 5 till 6.30, 7 till 8.30 or 8.45 to closing. We'll be back with some food history and some cookery books which were published last year after the break. Cambridge 105 Radio. On Sunday afternoons, relax with Jazz Today and Pete Butchers. Join me for music at the cutting edge, mainly new releases, many on small independent labels. The stuff you rarely get to hear elsewhere. I'll also be keeping a watching brief on jazz events in and around Cambridge, as well as chatting to local and visiting musicians. Jazz Today at 4pm every Sunday afternoon on Cambridge 105 Radio. Go on, challenge yourself. Are you struggling with day-to-day life? If you are, Lifeline Helpline is here for you. We are here to listen and offer support no matter what you are going through, so give us a ring. You can reach Lifeline every day from 11am to 11pm on free phone 0808 808 2121. Calls are confidential and you can choose to remain anonymous. Lifeline is operated by your local mental health charity, Lifecraft, and is available to anyone over 17 living in Cambridgeshire or Peterborough. 
CKLG accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk. CKLG Accountants, your partner in business, your partner in life. Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome back. And here on Flavour, we're very interested in food history. Last year, we spoke with Cambridge resident Valerie Bennett about some of her early food memories. I think my first food memory was we had a dog called Mike, who was a... not quite sure what he was, maybe a bit mixed. But the most exciting thing about him was that he would go down, he would walk to the end of the road and wait for the bus, catch it into town from along Huntingdon Road. He would catch it into town and then he would wait outside this big Sainsbury's, which in those days was facing Market Street on the left-hand side. He would wait and they would give him a bone and then he would bring it back. He didn't catch the bus back, he would walk back. So he must have been taken on a they bus all... in his life and... He must have been earlier by my, <laughs> by my father, I suppose. Much later, we met someone who had been one of the conductors on this bus. And he said, oh, Mike, and remembered him quite well. <laughs> this must have been in... Because nine... I was born in 1934, so it must have been 1937. Um... Anyway, at one point, he didn't come back, so we all got terribly anxious and never knew what happened to him. He obviously hadn't got back. Oh, so he never came back at all then? One, it finally, yes. It wasn't just as he was late home. Oh, no, he wasn't late home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid he died, I presume, mm-hmm. or got run over and nobody told us, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That was very sad. And the other memory I have of when we lived in Richmond Road was one day there was this sound of somebody selling something in the street, so we all rushed out, and it was a muffin man with muffins, selling muffins on his head. And they were hot, you could sort of smell the heat, you know, as you walked, walked along, and, and the smell was just wonderful. But I, nobody else has remembered it. Have I, have I actually missed, you know, have I made this up or not? Or was it just a special thing for a May the 1st or something like that? But we did eat them, I can remember the taste. I'd never had a muffin before. It was delicious. <laughs> Ah, some great stories there by Valerie. And another bit of food history came in Sue's interview with Shahida Rahman on the subject of Indian restaurants. I'm talking to Shahida Rahman and we are sitting in the most beautiful surroundings of Cambridge Central Mosque. And Shahida is an author and writer, but most recently has been involved with Open Cambridge and Mill Road History talking specifically about the development of the Indian restaurant scene in Cambridge from about the 1950s onward. I'm a member of the Mill Road History Society, so I decided to propose uh, the history of Indian restaurants, and the reason being my father established one of the very first in the early uh, 60s. So he came in 1957, and this is when most men who came from South Asia, uh, they arrived here and they established restaurants. So uh, we knew my father's uh, restaurant, which was the New Bengal restaurant on 
Regent Street, and that opened around about 1962. But at the time, we were aware that there were other restaurants. So his wasn't the first, so I can't claim his was the first. Um, So I, I did the research, and it was quite interesting to see what was there at the time. So there were another two restaurants on Regent Street. There was the Shalimar restaurant and the Taj Mahal. They opened in the early 50s. So they were already established and a very small community in Cambridge. So my father went on to establish another restaurant, the Bengal Tandu Mahal, and that was based on Fitzroy Street in Cambridge. So he opened that around about 1972. But we grew up in the Mill Road area. This is where the community, most of them were actually based here. Why do you think it was that the restaurants became so popular? So it was a new thing that men brought with them. So if we go back about 100 years, the first South Asian men who came were Lascars. They were Asian seamen who worked on British steamships. Uh, They helped with uh, the trade in England, so they brought back food such as spices, tea, coffee, and they helped ferry them back uh, uh, here to England. So most of them, uh, they learned how to cook on board the ships. So it's a small community who learned to cook and those skills they brought with them here. And there's the music signalling time for news from social media, beginning with Twitter. Yeah, Love Cambridge Restaurant Week is from the 14th to the 25th of March this year. And the organisers are right now asking businesses who would like to be involved to sign up. So if you contact Love Cambridge to do that. Second, Mercado Central have Instagrammed actually this morning to remind everybody that they are back open. The Maypole Pub is reopening on the 19th of January. You may know that that's been closed uh, for courtyard works and that's related to the demolition of the multi-storey car park alongside to be replaced by a new hotel. They've had to do some building works at the Maypole to compensate. Anyway, they're opening on the 19th of January. Fiona Macduff of Fiona's Patisserie has a box of her filled chocolate bars to win. The retail value is £26. Details are on her Instagram account. And finally, Malloy's Craft Butchers and Kota, who we've heard from several times today, are teaming up to give a 10-course taster menu with some of the best steaks from around the world. That's on the 28th of January at 7pm and you can get tickets via the Kota Instagram account. And there will be flights of wine available too. Sounds fantastic. There's plenty of good food growing in Cambridgeshire's fields throughout the year. And foraging chef Steve Thompson has also taken us on monthly discoveries of what's available and where in the foraging front. Here's an excerpt from the middle of last year with his young son, Rowan in tow. We're into July. It's been warm. It's been wet. Um, The good thing about warm and wet means that the mushrooms are starting to come through, which is always good, so keep your eye out on them. So what we're going to talk about first is a couple of different flowers we've got growing at the moment. So the first one we're going to talk about is rose bay willow herb. And we talked about that last month with the shoots and everything, so this is the next stage of the harvest. And it's when it flowers. What we do is we take the flowers, they're gorgeous pink flowers, we dry them out, and they have this wonderful cranberry flavour to them. It's akin to cranberry, it's not exact, but it's got that lovely kind of sharp 
berry flavour to it. That sounds delicious. Viscous flowers is one of the things people have made teas out of. Yeah, I think that's probably quite a good flower to compare it to almost. It's got the same sort of qualities to it while still being different, but it's, it's another lovely one. Yeah, you can make teas out of it cordials out of it you can use it to infuse into things jellies infuse it into creams with panna cottas we've made butters out of it before that's rowan in the background reading foraging books yeah so it's got a lovely flavor and it's a great second use of the plant a great third use of the plant now is once it flowers is using the leaves and it's making something called ivan's chai or ivan's tea and that used to be a really popular tea in this country up until breakfast tea overtook it there's a few things I think you can research online it's to do with smear campaigns against it and it all changed but it's, it's a tea that started really in Russia and it's very easy to make actually you take the leaves of the rose bay willow herb you pick them take them home leave them in the basket for about an hour or so just till they start to just wilt a little bit and then take each leaf in your hand and roll it up and just kind of give it a little bit of a bash between your hands then put them all in a bowl on top of each other all rolled up still cover that and leave that for about 24-48 hours until they start to go really nice and black and then you can dry it out. It's called a fermented tea, but it's not really fermentation, but it's it's a wonderful tea. We make loads of it every year. And when you say dry it out, do you mean in a dehydrator? Yeah, or... in a dehydrator, on a sunny windowsill, mm-hmm. any of those ways, whatever works best for you. That's really interesting that it's a his- it's historic English tea or British tea, if you like. Meanwhile, at Heath Fruit Farm, Rob Bowsfield gave us a potted history of his year's pickings. So we're back from the orchard and Rob's just shown me the cold store where the pears and apples are ripening. So I gather you were saying they actually develop a better flavour the longer you store them? When we pick the fruit, it's often slightly underripe because otherwise if we left it until it was tree ripe, it would just blow off and fall on the floor and the squirrels and the birds would come and eat it. So we pick it in good condition for storage purposes and it goes in cold storage. When you consider an apple like a cox, it's often very sharp when it's picked. It's, it's ripe to an extent, but it's sharp. And after a certain amount of time in cold storage, as the autumn draws to a close, about now they're at their peak, they've really developed their top flavour, they're in good condition, and they're, yeah, they're really yummy. Like, no, a test to that, they smelt absolutely delicious. I mean, you're busy all year round, aren't you? Oh yes, yes, it never stops for us, really. I mean, there's just some times of year when it's busier than others. Talk me through your year. Okay, so right now we're starting to think about pruning the trees. We're still selling apples out of cold storage and we're also starting to prune the trees and we're looking at next year's blossom buds. And then in the spring, We eagerly await the onset of blossom and we worry about late spring frosts and we hope we don't get too many of them. Because there was one this year, wasn't there? Well, there was more than one, actually. And in the end, I gave up trying to save the apricots by lighting bonfires around the trees because there's only so many nights you can get up and do that, isn't there? So once the blossom's set, what then happens? So we're guarding the fruitlets against pest and disease. We only spray if we really need to. If there's ladybirds on the tree and they're doing the job for us, we let them get on with it. And then we have to cut the grass around the trees to stop it taking the place over and stop it competing with the trees for nutrients. And then we're waiting for the cherries to start ripening, which generally happens about mid-July. And so we're picking cherries all through July. We open our farm shop on Saturday mornings. If there hasn't been too many frosts, we have apricots as well in July. That works out about 50% of the time. And then we're moving into plums throughout August. We have green gauge then we move into Victoria plums and damsons and then early apples like Discovery, Laxton's Fortune and then we move into picking pears and main crop apples after that. 
And where there's apples, there's cider. Simon Gibson of Simon Cider works with Rob to get all the best from the apples, even those that are past their sell-by date. This is a relationship that we built up over the last two or three years into me making cider. We're getting together with Rob, who has an orchard that has got an an eclectic range of of apples. And that's what we want as cider makers. We want range. We we want interesting stuff. And the first time I approached Rob, he said, no, we're we're busy. Really? Did you you really say no? He always says that, but I can't remember. (laughs) He did. Yeah, he said, no, we, we haven't got any apples left. About three years into my business, I messaged Rob again and he said, yes, we've got capacity. You can have some apples if you want them. And the relationship's been built from there. As a business, Simon Cider has always been about using waste apples. It's never been about premium quality apples. It's never been about going and buying the best stuff from where you can get it. It's been about getting the best you can from what is available as waste. And for Rob... It's greyed outs, it's the stuff they don't want off the trees, it's the bum-shaped apples, it's the scabby apples, it's all those sorts of things, the Kardashians. Kardashian the apples, Kardashians. yes. It's always been about taking the apples that would otherwise be thrown on the field and chucked away. It provides income for the growers that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And it also means that we get the best apples, we get the ripest apples, because Rob as a grower will pick apples that are generally slightly underripe because he needs to store them for sale and they'll ripen in the cold store and they'll ripen in the sheds. Whereas what we want is we want ripe apples because sugar is alcohol. Exactly. That's the business I'm in. Yeah, not just alcohol either. A new product on simoncider.co.uk is mulled cider fudge, which you can pick up alongside their local ciders such as Sweet Pea, Kingston Black and Angry Wasp. And as every year as we do on flavour, last year we featured some ideas for home cooking and Rosie Sykes gave us ideas for jam. One idea included rhubarb and since rhubarb in its fourth state is available now, let's hear some of them. So I do a lovely rhubarb jam with pink grapefruit, which is such a delicious combination and it just requires the juice and zest of a couple of grapefruits with about a kilo of rhubarb. One of my secrets to really good jam making is you combine all the ingredients with the sugar the night before. So what that does is it draws a lot of the liquid out of the fruit. So when you start cooking it, you don't have to worry about it sticking so much. So yes, there's lovely rhubarb around at the moment. I also think rhubarb and cardamom is a fantastic combination with a bit of lemon zest, maybe even some rose water. Um, I've done rhubarb and rose is lovely. Uh, The only thing with rose petals is that although it looks absolutely beautiful when you're making it, as you can imagine, um, the rose petals in the sugar syrup tend to go quite tough. So then when you put it on your toast, you sort of get some quite chewy, chewy, not very flavorful bits that think you might think oh gosh someone's left some paper in here. <laughs> the best thing would be if you could scoop them out but that equally is quite a lot of work one thing I've done is sort of finely chop the rose petals and then it's only it's more like having confetti in your jam I don't think there's a I don't think there's an answer to that little conundrum another regular feature is books and here is Lizzie Collingham talking about her book biscuits biscuits go back to the year dot, basically, as soon as we domesticated grain, we ended up making biscuits. But so 
there are many old recipes for biscuits and I decided to try them out. The ones that at the end of the chapter is actually quite yummy biscuits. We did um, eat and try a lot of biscuits things. So yes, I was baking away like mad. Do you now think you have a favourite or are they all lovely or are you fed up to the back teeth of your biscuits? I guess in a way my, the biscuit that I, I'm most sentimental about is the Garibaldi. And whenever everyone, I could hear everyone groaning going, ooh, why would you eat that? It's horrible. I, but I quite like Garibaldi and I've actually got a recipe for the book for fresh Garibaldi and they taste really yummy. The reason why I like Garibaldi so much is because I associate them with my granddad. So he really, he was a Yorkshire, he was a Sheffield steel worker and he used to call them uh, squashed flies and he'd, we'd always have a squashed fly biscuit with our morning cup of tea. And so I kind of have a sentimental association. I think that most people, they, they do, you develop your preferences for biscuits when you're a kid. You have all these kind of sentimental, nostalgic association. Having your digestive with your orange squash at playgroup was another one that I really remember. So digestive, I think uh, biscuits are very nostalgic food. And I remember club biscuits in my lunchbox. Oh yes, they were designed to go in kids' lunchbox after the Second World War. They they were called Crawfords at the time and they came out of the war as, as the least popular biscuit making company. They decided to change things by going for children. So that's when they invented the wagon wheel. So this sort of strange combination of marshmallow and jam and biscuit and chocolate and put it in a wrapping with cowboys on that would appeal to kids and that was a sort of standard lunchbox item. Sarah Lavelle of Quadrille spoke to us about a new book of Malaysian cooking by Mandy Yin called Sambal Shiok. And what an extraordinary book it is. I, I, I've rarely seen a book that's so vibrant. Yeah, it's gorgeous, isn't it? I love that cover. Beautiful oh. photography and, yeah, fantastic colours. And some of the spreads inside are just, they're just extraordinary. Yeah, just beautiful. It's Louise Hager is the photographer and we've worked with her on lots of books over the years. A, a lot of the kind of impact of those photos is also the styling, which is by Alex Breeze. He's an absolutely brilliant stylist. But yeah, I mean, it's just a breathtaking book in every possible way, kind of visuals and the breadth of the recipes and the flavours. It's just, she's, uh, it's such an achievement, I think. And it's her first book. It's amazing. And an incredibly useful book as well. Uh, you know, the, uh, part of the introductory pages tell you about Malaysian ingredients. And um, not only does she give you her own preferred brands, which I think is useful, She's very clear about what not to use. So she says, you know, use any type of rice except Uncle Ben's because it never <laughs> gets it never gets soft enough to absorb sources. You, I, you rarely see that sort of <laughs> candidness. <laughs> no, it's really good, isn't it? And well, you know, you've got lots of cookery books, and I've got hundreds of cookery books, but I don't really think I've ever I've ever seen one that goes into that level of useful detail and background it I, I think it's a really unique book so you work near mandy yin's restaurant don't you holloway road in, in london i do have indeed. you ever been oh yes i have just before christmas and uh, working at the university i decided to make a special venture there to go and get a takeaway and so i sat up at the counter observed everything that was going on and it was exciting very vibrant atmosphere there and it's lovely took the food home and wow the flavors are very vibrant quite i mean i went for the least chilified one but it was still, yeah, 
impressive, shall we say. <laughs> no, absolutely loved it. She's done very well to, to get a book out of this, hasn't she? Oh really? my goodness, yeah. I think she has. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely right. lovely. Okay, must go. <laughs> Finally, we said goodbye last year to one of the most original and gifted people in Cambridge's food scene, Stella Pereira. Yeah, Stella was an extraordinary person whose creativity and incredibly high standards showed in her cooking, her photography, her drawings, uh, her supper clubs. And her friend Corinne Paillet, Gourmandise, paid tribute to her. I used to tell her, I said, you know, you're... A Michelin star chef. I said, the Michelin guide doesn't know you. And she says, no, I'm not. I'm not that good. You know, she was about everything. She was so humble. I said, Stella, you don't realize. Uh, you really, it was extraordinary and extraordinary food. And I think it's extraordinary in every way. It's like, so she did the food, obviously amazing, but it's everything. So she you know, she 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 painted, hand painted the menus, hand written the menus. You know, calli calligraphy. And then I remember you. I don't know if you remember that that supper club. She made these little copper balls. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> she written by hand with her husband Carlos because they were both amazing crafters. I mean, you know, you 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 went. The, these events were special, very special, and I know they were very hard for her as well. That's why she didn't do too many, because with uh, her condition, it was, you know, uh, very tiring. Um, but, oh, my God, yes. And as a person, she always seemed very gentle to me. Uh, yeah, that's because I wrote, I was writing some notes and I, that's that's what came from the first word. Yes, very gentle, very kind. Yeah, mm. totally, totally mm. agree with that. Mm. And um, a gentle joyousness as well. And also single-minded. If she yeah. was going to do something, she was going to yeah. do it and she was going to do it well. Exactly. She, just, she knew she didn't have a lot of time. Mm. You know, I think when you live with that kind of condition or what, whoever, a lot of people like that would just, uh, I had this, so I knew someone else with different condition, but similar, she, you just take life fully. Whatever you do, you just do it, don't you? You haven't got any second thought, whether, whether, whereas we, we would, we, we do. It's one of these people that you meet only once in your life, I think. And I really, truly believe that. Because yeah. she was so authentic, she just, yeah, you can't, yeah, you can't replace someone like that. I miss her. <laughs> I really miss her. But at the same time, I know she wants us to not be too sad because that's how she was. And, and get on with our life and do the things that we have to do, that we really want to do. So I think if I, if I can honour Stella, I would do that. We're going to end today with a little more from Stella. And Flavour is back on alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated Mondays at 6 and Thursdays at 2pm. And will be available by podcast early next week. Uh, coming up on Cambridge 105 today at 1 o'clock, The Gadget Guide. But let's finish with Stella Pereira talking to Flavour's Ruth Reyes and then some sounds from Stella's Supper Club of the 25th of March 2017. We'll be back on the 29th of January and thank you for listening. It's become a habit of mine to create, to make jam every time there's a new fruit in season. I started with four. There was um, strawberry port, 
and bay leaf. That happened quite by chance, and as does most of my cooking. I just sort of experiment in the kitchen and pull out all the herbs and pull out everything I have and just mix things. And with the port and bay leaf, the bay leaf seems to intensify the flavor of the strawberries. So I, I like that. The other two that I had was the, the orange compote, and I added some muscatel and some vanilla because I love muscatel and I keep putting it in everything. Because it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my father's recipe, actually. Oh. My dad's obsessed with orange marmalade, so I, I had to put that as one of my first jams. And the other one, which is also quite interesting, is the tomato uh, port and basil. The tomato jam comes from my husband's side of the family. His mother makes an incredible jam, and I hope one day I can sort of match her jam. But I've <laughs> tried my best. I had basil lying around and I just threw a few and it actually worked really well for my How do you eat these jams? You're not like a normal jam, slap it on some toast. No, first of, <laughs> first of all, there's a lot of fruit in it. Uh, there's yeah. about more than 60% of fruit in it. But we would usually have them with cheeses. So from fresh cheeses to goat's cheeses, they work really well. I like the tomato jam with a goat's cheese, with a strong goat's cheese. And that's how we have it. You could either have it for breakfast or you could have it after a meal. Instead of dessert, have cheese, jam and sourdough. Lovely. So there's hazelnut, chocolate, uh, churros, orange, oh. uh, cherries, oh, roast rhubarb in port, Is that the ice cream. That was amazing. Do you want to? <laughs> and it was very well received. The atmosphere was fantastic, wasn't it? The thing that I enjoy most about these suppers is, is the food is just an element that gets people talking. To me, it's, it's actually the people that sit around the table, and I keep saying this, it's the people. Because you can give them, you know, really, really good food, and if you don't have the right atmosphere, it's not going to be an enjoyable night. And sometimes if you have really simple food, you can achieve a magical evening just with the mood, the lighting, you know. Everything on the table kind of brings that together. I think you kind of got that feeling at the end of it. Yeah, well, it was a great night. So thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you.